Pandax's Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, the New York Times bestselling book by Blackstone's Stephen Schwartzman. I'm Dan Mack. On today's show, a big play for your financial data and what tech means for the future of democracy. But first, feeling the burn. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is now the clear frontrunner for the Democrats' presidential nomination, having won in New Hampshire and Nevada while placing a very close second in Iowa. He's also polling very well in many of the Super Tuesday states, and none of his moderate rivals seem interested in dropping out. The political reaction has been kind of a mirror image of 2016, when Republicans seem to erupt in a civil war over the possible nomination of Donald Trump, and Democrats were thrilled that their rivals were about to put a so-called unelectable candidate on the ballot. Not only would they win the White House, but probably Congress to boot. And we know how that all turned out. Now, most business and technology executives at the time also didn't take Trump too seriously, but did warn economic calamity if they were wrong. Kind of like how many of those same people are now warning about the economic ramifications of a President Sanders. Although few of them seem to actually be taking steps to protect against it, including in the healthcare sector. The bottom line here is that the only certainty we have now is uncertainty, and that could present its own set of challenges come November, no matter who we're voting between. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios Politics editor Margaret Talev. But first, this. In the New York Times bestselling book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, Blackstone's Stephen Schwartzman shares some of his lessons from creating and building one of the world's leading investment firms. Recommended by Jack Welch, Janet Yellen, Ray Dalio, and more. Get the book on Amazon or at readwhatittakes.com. We're joined now by Axios Politics Editor Margaret Talev. Margaret, Bernie is now the front runner. It seems that Democrats have been taken by surprise by this. Why were they taken by surprise? He was the number two person four years ago. He's got this fervent support. How did they get surprised by this? Well, a lot of Democrats are still Democrats are institutionalists. And also Bernie Sanders is 78, ran once and didn't succeed and just had a heart attack. So there are a lot of kind of conventional wisdom reasons why this could be difficult. He's a democratic socialist. You can say that's different than being a socialist, but it still has the word socialist in it. And for a month, Democrats have been talking about a different kind of strategy, a strategy about how could you kind of restore the status quo. And the electorate, at least the primary and the caucus electorate, does not seem to be in a mood for restoring the status quo. They seem to be in a mood to fight fire with fire, to summon the emotion, the energy, and to a large extent, the anger that helped sweep President Trump into office, but to summon it from the other side of the ideological spectrum. And that's where we are now. Do we ever get to the point where those who espouse conventional wisdom realize that it hasn't been true for a very long time when it comes to presidential politics? Obviously, not just Trump's election, but Barack Obama's election. I think that's a very valid point. I covered President Obama and before he was President Obama, I covered the Obama campaign, the first one in 2007, 2008. And at the time, everyone thought he's halfway through a term as senator. He's African-American, no experience. How could he possibly beat the Clinton machine? But two things were true. Number one, he was a very good candidate. Number two, Hillary Clinton was not the greatest candidate. And there was a number three, which was that people were reacting to the Bush administration and President Obama's message of opposing the Iraq war and, and kind of reinstituting this idea of multilateralism appealed to a lot of people. They wanted something hopeful and optimistic and and sort of the opposite of Bush in terms of foreign policy. 
policy. If that rule holds true here, there could be a pendulum swing. It is not necessarily driven by that hope and change message. It's more of like a rage and change message, like I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. But the Democrats version of that, I think one of the other calculus questions for strategy is that in President Trump's case, he came from the outside, kind of took over the Republican Party and changed what it means to be a Republican in America today. And so if you're a Democratic institutionalist, you're looking at what Bernie Sanders is proposing and you're saying the same thing's going to happen to the Democrats. Yeah. And so that's why partly why there's so much resistance to it, that if it works, like if it succeeds and if he were to become elected and, and be the president, that it could fundamentally change what the Democratic Party stands for. Outside of Nevada, where he did actually get a majority, Iowa, New Hampshire, he he got relatively small numbers compared to winners in the past. If there is a Democratic establishment, is there no Democratic establishment that can put some serious, serious pressure on a couple of these candidates, for example, somebody like Klobuchar, to get out? It's not working. It's not happening. I don't know who that establishment is. Is there an effort? There isn't the same, like, centralized council of elders that you might have once thought of. It's funny because we have these really strong, they're still strong, these two-party systems. But it's unclear who's in charge of either one of the parties, you know, like is Mitch McConnell in charge of the Republican Party or is Donald Trump in charge of the Republican Party? Is the DNC in charge of the Democratic Party? Obviously not. So who's in charge of the Democratic Party? It's up for grabs. And that's why nobody wants to step back in case it goes to a contested convention. But it's also why there's so much of a window for Bernie Sanders to take this momentum and run with it, because there are a lot of voters who either have stayed home in the past or are coming of age now and are more liberally oriented who just don't think the system works, whether Democrats in charge or whether Republicans in charge. Let's talk about the second piece of this, which is were Bernie Sanders to actually win in the actual legislating process? You know, there's a let's go back to conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom in Democratic parties. Bernie is explicitly running against Democratic establishment. Those are and, and Democratic senators. Those are the people he would need to help pass legislation where he elected. He is not considered the most popular person on Capitol Hill, just, you know, from personality perspective and the way he works with other members, including of his own party. Is there real reason to believe that were Sanders elected president, that he would struggle to get some of his major policy initiatives through either in whole or in part? Or do you look at the Trump example and say Republicans were slamming Donald Trump until the minute he was elected president and suddenly everything he wanted, he got? Yeah, I mean, and that's certainly what Bernie Sanders and his team would argue. And if Bernie Sanders became the nominee and then if he were to win and then if conventional wisdom were to be defied and it didn't drag on all the lower ticket races so that the House and the Senate were, you know, wipeouts and that sort of thing. So if all these pieces fell into place and if you had Democratic control in one chamber and near tie in the other chamber and you had a Sanders presidency, there are still very real questions about what kind of fundamental changes he could make to health care law, what could happen with taxes. The argument of look what Trump did, it is worth considering. But healthcare is one of these issues that the polling is a little confusing on because Bernie has been able to build on momentum and support, even though he is talking about Medicare for all. But a lot of voters say that they don't really understand what that means. Like the way he's proposing it, it would mean ending the private insurance system as it exists now, which is what most Americans have. And a lot of people want to be able to keep their insurance. So a lot of Democratic incumbents are concerned that people don't want that blown up if people sweep Bernie Sanders into office. 
they might have to rethink the way they feel about it. There are a lot of unknowns. But one thing we do know, as we've seen with President Trump, is you don't have the unilateral power to do a lot of things. You need Congress's approval. On the other hand, the sub caveat to that is if you're willing to push everything to the Supreme Court and cast fade to the wind and challenge your own party's orthodoxy and assume that your base will support you, you can push the envelope farther than most conventional politicians think you can. Which is the bigger risk from your perspective to Democrats when it comes to electability? Bernie becoming the nominee through the primary process, becoming the obvious nominee, or a brokered convention in which there's some other Democrat that's the nominee and Bernie supporters lose their mind and stay home? (laughs) There are both very real risks. And the one thing that I think I can say with certainty is that if you're President Trump kicking back and watching all of this, you like the circular firing squad for the Democrats compared with your other option, which is early consolidation around one nominee who all the Democrats feel great about, who poses an obvious threat to you. Which is interesting because that's exactly what the Clinton campaign thought four years ago. I think the answer to your question is we just don't know yet. A broker convention could be incredibly bad and tear up the party. Bernie Sanders could move much closer to securing this nomination by Super Tuesday. And if he does, then the pattern of what happens between now and that convention may change also. I think we just don't know. Things have turned and begun to solidify and accelerate in a way that you could not really have seen two weeks ago. And everyone now on both sides of the aisle is scrambling to try to understand what that means. Well, Margaret, we do know this. Uh, You've been to conventions in the past. I've been to a bunch of conventions in the past. They are generally very boring (laughs) affairs. A broker convention would be much more interesting to get off the plane and not know who's making the final speech. Margaret Talev, politics editor for Axios. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My final two right after this. In the New York Times bestselling book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, Blackstone's Stephen Schwartzman shares some of his lessons from creating and building one of the world's leading investment firms. Recommended by Jack Welch, Janet Yellen, Ray Dalio, and more. Get the book on Amazon or at readwhatittakes.com. Now it's time for my final two. And first up are reports that Intuit, the maker of TurboTax software, is nearing a $7 billion deal to acquire Credit Karma, a provider of credit score information and monitoring services. Why it matters, outside of the huge price tag, is that the combined company would hold a staggering amount of personal financial information, made even more valuable because the combined company could now do things like match tax data with credit data. For consumers, this likely means better recommendations, like if you're trying to search for a loan, but it probably also means much larger privacy concerns. Don't be surprised if regulators probe into that last piece when it comes time for deal approval. And finally, a bit of dystopia to kick off your week. Pew Research is out with a new poll of nearly 1,000 tech innovators, researchers, activists, and business leaders. And nearly half of them believe that tech advances are likely to harm global democracy over the next 10 years. Everything from misinformation on social networks to deepfakes. Specifically, 49% of respondents said the use of tech will mostly weaken core aspects of democracy and democratic representation. Another 33% said they will strengthen democracy, while 18% shrugged their shoulders. So I guess all of this is the brave new world. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national tortilla chip day. And we'll be back on Wednesday with another Pro Rata podcast.